Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man to you of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December 16, 2014. This is episode 1485 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Tuesday show, so you got me, just me. No interviews and no feedback and no news stories or anything. Just a subject we're going to dig into. Today I'm going to talk about permaculture. And I'm going to kind of back way up with the truck, so to speak, on this. And talk to you about it the way that sometimes I back up the truck and talk to you about preparedness. You know, I'll, I'll get on a subject and I'll get really advanced with it sometimes. And then listeners call in that have been listening to the show for years. And they just throw these words around. And because you've been working within your own community for almost six years now, you realize it's going to be uh, seven years, seven years in June. So it's six and a half years or our half half year anniversary coming up in January. And uh, with that much time behind it, because you've talked about something enough times that you feel like you've gotten it out there, you you start to leave new people kind of behind. And then it's a good idea a lot of times for people that have been around a while to be backed up with the truck as well to kind of go over the fundamentals. When I played football and we started to kind of screw up, or one the same thing when I played soccer as a kid, and you started to kind of lose track of things, you started to not perform as well during a game, what the coach would be working with you at the next practice on is the fundamentals. You back up to those fundamentals, and it all comes from fundamentals. And it, you, you say, well, that's, you know, that's high school football and, 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 you know, youth soccer. How does that apply to, to, you know, grownups? Well, I tell you what, in the NFL, National Football League, guys that are paid millions of dollars to play football, when they try to, when they start to kind of waver a little bit, you know what coaches take them right back to? With all the advanced plays and everything that are out there, as fast as that game moves, fundamentals. Blocking, tackling, ball handling, you know, uh, timing. It's always about the fundamentals. It's always where everything stems from. So we're going to come back to like a fundamentals show on permaculture today, the basic concept, what it is, why you should care. In fact, I've titled today's show, uh, What is this permaculture stuff and why should I even care? And I think I have a unique way of explaining it to people that are not of the, uh, you know, preaching to the choir type thing, reaching a broader audience with permaculture. And I think it's extremely important. And I feel there are extreme misconceptions about what permaculture actually is, what it's supposed to do, how it works, how it does, and what makes it successful or unsuccessful amongst people in agriculture, people on the outside, even people on the inside, definitely among what we call purple breathers. I'll tell you what those are today. Um, and a lot of other stuff that I think people just don't get. And I, th I think if you understand this, you'll understand why it's such a big part of what we do here, because this is the survival podcast. That means that we are concerned with our survival and the survival of our families and our communities and the survival of our children. That means we, we sit in today and look toward tomorrow with a mindset toward being prepared for what may come. I think if you examine the concept of permaculture, even if you don't use it in an agricultural sense, there is no better design science for doing exactly what survivalism is supposed to be all about. Before I get into that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, you know what? Whether you're trying to put food on the table, whether you're trying to protect your life and property, or whether you're trying to train to do either one of those things, you need ammo. A gun without ammo doesn't work. I was watching a rerun of Big Bang Theory last night, and little Bernadette was sitting in front of her laptop, and they were playing some kind of Star Wars game or something like that, and she was going pew, pew with her finger. 
You know, and Sheldon says to her, hey, you know, if you push the button for the blaster, it works a lot better. Well, that's how guns work, too. No ammo in the gun. You can say pew, pew, or bang, bang. doesn't really do anything. There are three parts to effective gun operation. The weapon, the ammo, and you, the operator. you got to have the ammo. you got to have the ammo not just to use the weapon, but to train the weapon, to run the weapon, and to run it realistically. I get my large purchases of ammo at bulkammo.com. Check them out. You'll see why, and you'll probably use them, too. Oh, by the way, the shipping, lightning fast. Next up, Safe Castle Royal. I call Safe Castle the original survival podcast sponsor because right at six years ago now, Vic Rontala became the very first company to officially sponsor the Survival Podcast, and SafeCastle's now been with us for six years. They also give their discount Buyers Club membership away for free to every member of my support brigade. That's a $49 membership they give you for free. Therefore, your first year of MSB with me, if you pay full price, if you're not military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder, is a dollar. And if you are a first responder, you get the first responder discount. It's actually profitable with one benefit. That's what a great company SafeCastle is, and a great supporter they are. They have everything you need for your prepping, from the practical to the tactical, from guns to gardens, and everything in between. You can learn more at SafeCastle.com. On that note, do consider joining the MSB. You get discounts to people like SafeCastle and Bulk Ammo. I'm working on bringing something really big to the table right now. I have to make a phone call after today's show to somebody that reached out to me about advertising. I'm going to pitch him on the MSB. It turns out he works for an advertising firm, and he's representing a specific company right now that he wants to bring on that I won't mention yet. And they are not, but they are the size of like a Bass Pro or a Cabela's. And when I looked at their portfolio, they have a lot of companies that would be great fits for the MSB. I can't promise you. But that's the kind of thing I'm trying to work on next to increase the value of the MSB, discounts to companies of that size, if I can get it done for you. Uh, if not, hey, there's still 60 companies in there right now. There's almost $200 worth of free ebooks. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever done is available in zip files. You name it, we got it in there, man. Check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com, click on members. And again, first responders, military police, uh, and Peace Corps members all qualify for a discount if you email me before. Not after you join, service discount in the subject line, one or two sentences about your service. And uh, with that, let us get into the year that was the episode. It's an interesting year. The year is 1485. There's all kinds of things that have been immortalized in history around this year. Uh, the first Tudor and the Lost Battle of Bosworth Field, which has to do with King Richard III and the play by the same name, and Henry VII. I'm not going to read that one, though. I'm going to read Dead in a Day. Sweating sickness becomes an epidemic because I think as preppers, this is something that will kind of hone in on your spidey senses. If the reports are to be believed, a deadly disease hit England a few days after the future king of England. Henry VII lands on shore to take back the English throne in the War of the Roses. The obvious conclusion is that King Henry brought it along with him from France, where, he sh where his ships have been days before. The deadly sickness takes hold and rapidly kills thousands. A person can feel fine in the morning and be dead before lunch. Symptoms will vary depending on the year that it hits, but in general, one gets a high fever, shortness of breath, extreme sweating. If you somehow survive 24 hours, you survive. This disease will be called the English sweating sickness, but it won't limit itself to England. In particular, it will hit Germany. And they will complain mightily that England gave them no notice nor advice for a cure. There is no cure. Oddly enough, it mostly hits the aristocracy and the rich. 
that will appear four times over the years and finally disappear in 1551. Medical historians suspect that it may have been an early version of the hantavirus, which is passed by the breathing and the smell of feces and urine in infected rodents. My take by Alex Shrug that puts these history segments together for us at tspwiki.com, the Survival and Sustainability Wiki. Hantavirus is rare in the USA, with one case in New York being reported by a man who had been bitten by a rat while camping in a lean-to in 2012. He survived. Viruses mutate and often become less deadly as they are passed along. Sometimes they become more deadly. If the sweating sickness was hantavirus, it was not passed from person to person. You get it by breathing in the leavings of infected rodents such as feces, urine, or food that the rodents have accessed. The Center for Disease Control advises when camping, one should not sleep directly on the ground or that food containers should be rodent-proof. Given how rare it is in the United States, though, it's probably not worth worrying about at the time of this writing. That would be 2014. Um, my big takeaway from this, personally, is, one, it shows you that the real epidemic viruses are not generally the things we know about and are preparing for or get hyped by the media. It's the ones that pop up out of nowhere. See, I quelled all of the fear about Ebola and said, you guys need to chill the hell out, eat a giant you know, mental volume, envision a giant blue volume floating in the air and mentally consume it when the media was hyping Ebola. And I told you it was all about the election and just chill. And then the election came and what do you hear about Ebola now? Almost nothing. Almost nothing. Still, blah, 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 blah. But not the hype and hysteria and freak out and the world's going to end and blah, blah, blah. And by the way, how about Mike Adams, your, your, your favorite yellow journalist over at Natural News? It will, it, the, the cases will double every day. There's no stopping it. Yeah, okay, where is it at? All right, because of how it works. But I am always concerned about the potential for epidemic, pandemic of something. And it's one of the biggest large type threats that we have that is a legitimate possibility. The next thing is, why did the rich and aristocracy get this more than the poor? You know, if you're breathing rat poop and rat pee and eating food that rats have salivated on or pooped on, you would think that the poor would have to be in those meager uh, surroundings more than the wealthy. I don't really know. I can postulate. One would be that maybe that the wealthy were more likely to have a surplus of grain, a surplus of food, and be storing it near them or in their homes where the poor might have to day-to-day -day get what they need. And if it's inhalation more than a rodent ate it, then it might be more likely that if the food was kept close to where the living quarters were, it was more likely to be inhaled. But that is purely speculation. This would be an interesting project for a young person to learn about history with independent learning. Why? No one really seems to know. No one's even sure what it is. But I bet if enough of the evidence were examined and somebody went at it with the intent of figuring out why and used grammar, rhetoric, and logic from the trivium, one could come up with a reasonable or reasonable set of hypotheses. So you might have a single hypothesis you come up with, or several, and a preponderance of evidence toward the one. This would be a great way to make somebody learn about history through the investigative process and learn about investigation as well, because you have basically a forensic investigation being done of something that happened all the way back in 1485 with the limited information that's available. That's a great way to learn. Just saying, for those of you with kids, this is the type of project to put them on for independent learning. Anyway...
With that, uh, I do want to talk about real quick the Bob Wells Plan of the Week, which fits nice into a show on permaculture. Uh, the Bob Wells Plan of the Week to this way is the Methley Plum Tree. The Methley Plum is highly adaptable from Zone 5 to Zone 9, and that means like northern Pennsylvania down to south Texas. That's pretty adaptable. It's a juicy, sweet plum with red flesh, reddish-purple skin, and great flavor. It's an attractive tree that is vigorous and bears heavily. It ripens early, and it's very cold-hardy. This is Bob Wells' personal favorite when it comes to plums. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as the hard-to-find specialty trees. You can find this plant at bobwellsnursery.com. There are links in the show notes. And uh, remember, if you're MSB, you get 10% off all purchases from Bob Wells. I love this plant. I have several of them on my property. Uh, I have yet to harvest any plums because they all went in last year, and I mean all this year. Um, but they did phenomenal from a growth and adaptability standpoint. Everywhere I planted them, they did well. So I have about five, I think, on the property at this point. Most of mine did not come from Bob. I did get a couple from him, but I found this to be a very common tree in the box stores as well. And on my uh, on my my spring, late spring, early summer trip to save trees from box stores, I found quite a few of them this year, and that's where I picked up most of mine. So I think this is really a great tree for you to try. Everything I've read about them from catalog companies, uh, it seems to indicate they're extremely productive. In the rain tree catalog, it's noted that these trees often fruit in their nursery. So they have a big, you know, roll of pots of them that they're 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 selling to customers, and the daggone things are fruiting right in the nursery. So this would be a good one if you want just some assured productivity. All right, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which is what is this permaculture stuff, and why the hell should you even care about all this hippie crap? Um, you know, I, I get people that say, isn't this permaculture stuff all about these hippies rolling around in the mud? And I, I kind of wish somebody would take that YouTube video down. But there's a link in today's show notes, and there's a whole slew of links, not in the place where the links normally are, but built into a paragraph. And this is what that paragraph says. Many people wonder why they should even care. Isn't permaculture just hippies rolling in the mud? No, it's more like greening deserts, and there's a link there. Greening more deserts, and there's a link there. And perhaps even using cows to restore entire ecosystems and feed half the world. There's a link there. It might also be completely redesigning the largest farm in Jordan, and a link there. Uh, building a cold climate, sustainably, sustainable, profitable orchard, link there, and perhaps making a backyard feed an entire family, and a link there. So today we look at permaculture from the basics of understanding and functionality standpoint. I think both people totally new to permaculture, and those who are full-time practitioners will enjoy a look into the design science of permaculture. That's what it's all about today. So let's start out with what is permaculture beyond the typical definition. I always say it's a design science. But that's really what it is. It's a scientific method of design. And you can continue with that mimics natural systems. Okay? But I don't think you have to. I think that natural systems are the obvious teacher in the world. That if we take everything away and went back to the basics, I mean the absolute basics, like all modern technology just disappeared, like some people fear will happen. But I don't mean just computers and electronics, I mean like people were just here like they were 10,000 years ago again, living in skins and building huts out of whatever was around them. And you didn't have a, you know anything approaching modern education. And you didn't have a track record of, of humankind written down to review. And you had to look out and figure out how to live. Well, it would be the natural systems. It would be the only thing that you could get feedback from. 
and that every advance over time in humanity actually stems from that original concept of how do natural systems work. So I think that's just a natural point. But I think when you take a scientific approach to design, that alone is enough to really understand how powerful permaculture is. If you're taking a scientific approach to design, then you are going to ask a multitude of questions before you design anything. And that's not just the typical mechanical engineering questions, you know, how big should it be or what have you. But what is the purpose of this device? Who does it serve? And how does it fit with their daily life? We call this in, in modern world ergonomics. So you get a car, how's its ergonomics? If I use the stereo a lot, if I have my my volume and my 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 chain able ability to change channels and shift tracks on the steering wheel so I can keep my eyes on the road learn that steering wheel and do this all with touch it's much more ergonomic than leaning forward the old way like all the cars we had when we were kids if we're my age or older right and shove that big old 8 track tape in the face of that AM radio much more ergonomic to have all your MP3s loaded onto your phone your phone linking that's a design science approach to the fact that human beings get in cars, travel, and want to listen to audio entertainment and want to communicate with other humans. So that same phone now, I have a button on my steering wheel and my Toyota 4Runner, boom, brings up my phone, call my son, boom, Siri calls my son for me, I talk to him. That's ergonomics. And that's a scientific approach to design. And, and not many things are actually designed that ergonomically or that scientifically in, in the modern world. The higher the expense... And the greater the competition, over time, the greater that manufacturers pay attention to ergonomics. But when it comes to cheap stuff, there's not a lot of pay, pay, paying attention to ergonomics. When you're just stamping it out of a factory. Or when you're doing something like low-end, high-cost items, like production homes. Not a lot of real attention. Three-bedroom, two-bath home has a basic same floor plan it always has. Maybe the kitchen's gotten a little bit bigger and what have you. But in custom homes where people are paying more and getting more influence on the decisions, there's more thought about flow, right? So anything that starts to move you in that direction starts to head into the the kind of thinking that's in permaculture. doesn't mean it's permaculture, but you're heading toward that kind of thinking. So we're going to go through a lot today, and I want you to think about that concept of scientific approach to design. Fitting the design into the usability for the people that are in the system and for maybe the animals that are in the system if it is agricultural. But that ergonomic concept. We have to also talk about what it's not. And, you know, and the misconceptions about what, who the people in permaculture are. Who are the people behind it? Most people that hear about permaculture but don't really know about permaculture, immediately associated with hippies. And if you do a cursory look at it, you can find a lot of hippies preaching permaculture. Most of them don't know what permaculture is because they don't understand where I'm about to go next, which is how the directive and the ethics create sustainable design. All right, Because if you change a tenant, if you change a pillar in a building, the whole building falls down. Right. So if we have four pillars holding up a building, and they're all designed and engineered to hold up that building, and we weaken one sufficiently, then the whole structure is compromised, even if the other three are strong. 
And the hippies in permaculture generally, not always, but generally, because I, I believe there's two types of hippies. There's productive and non-productive. But I have no problem with productive hippies. All right? And there are productive hippies. And if you don't believe in that, you, I can show you some. All right? But the non-productive drainbow hippie that's part of permaculture is usually the most vocal. And then there are people with specific political agendas around the concept of a word that I despise, which is social justice. Social justice is one of the most damaging things, I believe, politically to the United States of America and to modern, the modern world. The concept that we can, uh, we can make things justified by stealing from some and giving to others. And there is a segment of permaculturists that are those people that think that way. And they have taken something like permaculture and wrapped their political agendas into it. And that is absolutely the antithesis of permaculture. So that is not permaculture. That is what some people do with permaculture. Just like I teach you that the, the economy of the United States of America, by textbook definition, is a fascist economy. But fascism, where you take people and put them in concentration camps, is what one fascist government did. We have a totally different variety of fascism here. So you can... You can Both be doing permaculture, but be twisting it or practicing it as intended. It's just a thing, right? And it's no more true that that a, a permaculture is a hippie thing because hippies do permaculture than it would be to say that a Volkswagen Jetta is a hippie car because some hippies drive Jettas. Because I drove a Jetta and I'm not a hippie, right? And I think the Jetta is a great car. So you can't just say because somebody does something that everybody that does that thing is that thing. And if you don't get that, then you deny yourself the opportunity for incredible learning that is permaculture. So I mentioned there's four pillars, and I believe there are four pillars to permaculture. There are the prime directive and the three ethics. And without those four pillars, none of it works. And I believe they're inherently universal if we do not alter them as they are intended. The first pillar is the prime directive. And that directive is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. And I believe it's very important that we do not alter that ethic as originally written by permaculture's founder, Bill Mollison, to, to take responsibility for everybody and their children. It's not, that's not what it is. It's ourselves. You put your hands on your chest, ourselves, me, my family, my community. I am responsible to take care of me and my children. When you say are, that acknowledges community, that acknowledges family. It does not acknowledge globalism. Okay? It is about you and what you actually influence, not other people doing it on your behalf against your will. Permaculture is anti-political. I can say that because the founder says so. He said we have no room for politicians or priests. Okay? We don't have any room for that. We only have a prime directive and three ethics. And that's it. So what are the three ethics, the other three pillars? The next one is ethic one, care of the earth. We should not be destroying the planet. And because that's been politicized... People want to get political. If you leave the politics out, I don't care what you believe about the 
political environmental issues. If you take an average person and go, is it okay to dump oil on this field and kill all things in it? They go, no, we shouldn't do that. Right? The average person understands, if you're not a psychopath, that this ball of dirt that we all sit on, this ball of dirt, rock, and water, is the only one that we have. And that everything that is to actually be sustainable, that is to be able to endure, has got to do so without going through a complete extraction process of that which makes it function. So earth care. The second one is care of people. If you're hurting people, it's not permaculture. Okay? And you can have a business that's successful without hurting people. You can run a community without hurting people. You don't have to harm people to be able to be successful in life. There's this whole villainization of the successful and the wealthy that's out there. And in some cases, I believe it's warranted, but it's generally not warranted where it's applied. Because the successful and wealthy that are villainized are the shop owners, right? Or the guy that built a small business from nothing into something relatively successful. Not the oligarchs who you don't even know who they are. Right? Those are the people that actually have, I believe, an evil intent for others, that, that don't care about mining human beings. The average small business owner can't mine people or they leave him and go somewhere else. The average small business person has to farm his business. The average small business owner does his best to care for the people that work for him. And we, if we, I'm going to get to how these all tie together with design in a second. But so we don't hurt the earth and we don't hurt people. We take responsibility for ourselves and that of our children. Three of the pillars are in place. We need a fourth pillar. The fourth pillar is a return of surplus. Or as it was originally written, setting limits to population and consumption. And what I mean by that is very simple. Let's say you have an acre and you want to raise chickens. How many chickens can go on that acre? We can get into a scientific formula that figures out what really works, but we can all agree on this. We can put six chickens on an acre. We, we, if it's managed properly, it doesn't even begin to tax the capability of that acre to support those six chickens. We cannot put 10,000 chickens on that acre. They will strip the land bare in a day. It will become inherently unsustainable, and it will destroy the very land that's just supposed to support the chickens. There's a limit to how much we can take. There's a limit to how much we can consume. Okay, That's why if you're a hunter, you know that there's regulations that say you can only shoot so many of a particular animal per season. Because if we just went out and shot as many as we all wanted to, and as many as we all could, we would destroy the population. All right? Another way to look at this is a return of surplus. We have to leave enough behind to replace what we've taken. And what would normally be considered waste has to be returned to the system. So if we grow a crop and we harvest the harvestable parts, we consume some, we feed livestock with some, perhaps we sell or barter some, maybe we even give some away, but in the end, the harvestable portion of a crop is small compared to generally what's considered the waste that's chopped up and siled and thrown away and discarded. Instead, we might return that to the, the soil itself in a chop-and-drop fashion, put it to the ground and let fungi and bacteria decompose it, let animals process it and turn it back into the earth from which it came. If we return surpluses, okay, then systems become sustainable. And this applies to business. 
If you take a business and you take every ounce of profit out of that business and extract it, and you do not reinvest into the business, the business eventually fails. And I've seen small business people do this over the years, time and time again. They pay themselves a salary out of their business, and when the business begins to falter, they don't cut their salary. As long as there's enough to continue to cover their salary, they take every dime if they have to, and those businesses always end up failing. Every time. Because at the very point the business needs an infusion of return of surplus, you're in an extraction model. So again, don't think this just applies to growing food. These, these four pillars are how you run businesses, they're how you run communities, they're how you run private organizations, they're how you run community organizations, charitable organizations. If you practice these principles, you begin to develop capital beyond monetary capital. Financial capital is one form of capital. You begin to develop social capital, experiential capital, cultural capital. There's eight forms of capital, and I'll put a link to where you can read an article about that because I'm not going to go into it in depth today. But those forms of capital, all eight of them, or what in business was called in the past soft values, only build themselves around entities and groups that are practicing those four pillars of, of design. See, the ethics and the, and, and, the, and the directive are not just nice things that we put on a shelf, the way my good friend Paul Wheaton thinks we should. They're actually the fundamental concepts of design. So that if I say to you, go design an agricultural field, go design a business, go design a charitable organization, go design your own household, go design your preparedness strategy. And you're like sitting in a house that's a 2,000 square foot house, but nobody's put up any walls yet. Nobody said, this is where the bathroom is, this is where the living room is, this is where the bedrooms are, this is where the kitchen is. It's very difficult to design that house. The walls that come in, become the restrictions. You start to see a floor plan. Once you start to see restrictions, okay, this area makes a good kitchen. If I'm going to put a kitchen in there, I need countertops. I need to, to do work. I need cabinets to store things. I need a refrigerator. I need a sink. I need a stove. Where does that all fit in there? And the restriction that you don't like actually helps you see that design. Well, if this is going to be a bedroom, I'm going to want light to come in. So this wall needs a window. I want to have a bathroom for the, the master bedroom. So this area would make a good bathroom. And the way we can process the flow into there, we need storage for our clothes. And every time a wall goes up, the mind gets better in tune with the design. And it's very difficult to design everything with no restrictions. And the more restrictions placed on a design... In time, the more elegant the design can become, the more functional it can become if the designer is up to the task. So, so many things in life that we go to design, we go out and we look at this empty field and we go, how do I do this? Okay, let's start off with the first thing. I need to take responsibility for myself and that of my children. Therefore, anything that I do here must be done to the end of supporting me, myself and my family first. Because once we can stand up and be self-sustaining, we can really do good things for other people. And we can actually build more because we do not depend on others from a standpoint of our basic needs. I mean, we're all interdependent beings. To believe that you can be completely and totally independent of others is ridiculous. I won't even go there today. It just is. But you can at least provide for your basic needs. 
that can be done through monetary gain and it can be done through direct acquisition. So I can build a system that will feed my family to a large degree. I can also build a system that one way or another generates a profit so that I can feed my family with what I can't produce for myself. Or I can just build a profitable system and feed my family with it. I don't have to produce any of my own food if I don't really want to. It could still be permaculture design. Probably not going to happen, but it could be. Because as soon as you start thinking this way, you start thinking, well, there's space there. It, it could at least provide us this, this, and this. All right. So from those restrictions, so then I say to myself, okay, I have to make sure that I'm taking responsibility for myself, but for my children too. So that means the things I do here have to be lasting. When I'm gone, they still have to provide for my family and my community. All right. Then the next thing I have to say to myself is, I cannot harm the earth. So now, when I think, well, I'd like to do this, well, if that's environmentally damaging, especially if there's no mitigate, no way to mitigate it, no way to, to undo the damage, it's a permanent damage to the ecosystem. I can't do it. Okay, So that becomes a wall. That starts to show me where my kitchen is in a house diagram. right? And then I say, I can't hurt people. So I can't extract from people. I have to find a value-added way to do business with people. I can't trick people into giving me their money or their time or their effort. I have to actually provide them something in return for that that's of equal or greater value, at least to their mind. Then I say, okay, and everything that this system does that is an output must be usable or it must return to the system from which it came from. I can't be offloading my problems on other people. That's return of surplus. right? So if I have cattle, I can only have so many cattle in a permaculture design system. If I'm loading up truckloads every day from a CAFO and exporting manure to somewhere else and going, I don't care where it goes. I just need to get out of here because it stinks. It's not permaculture. So I have to say, see, this is, how this, this is why the, this third ethic thing where it's written two different ways unless we alter it. So I'm going to give it the redistribution of surplus is a political rewrite of the ethic that does not work and destroys sustainability. So we're just not even going to go there. But setting limits to population. If I limit the population of the cattle on my property such that their manure becomes an asset to the property because it fertilizes the system, and if I harness it, and some of it can be composted, some of it can just be trampled in the field with the litter. Some of it can go into nutrient cycles, but if I limit the population of how many cows are there at any one time, that waste is not waste. Now it's, it, it is, a, it is a, a component of a sustainable system. If I exceed the carrying capacity of the land and say it doesn't matter because I can feed the cattle with food I bring in from offsite, they still have a surplus I can't deal with of waste. So I have to be able to balance that equation. That's why setting limits to population, how many cows can be there, and consumption, how much we take, whether we take it or our animals take it, and return of surplus are the same ethic. They're identical. They result in the same thing, sustainability. So those have to be in place. Once they're in place, then we can start examining the other kind of rat hole that people go down with permaculture. So people think, think that techniques are permaculture when techniques are just ways by which we uh, obtain our goals in permaculture. So let's look at some common techniques or systems in permaculture and see how they're not permaculture. They're just one thing permaculturists do. Okay, So swales. 
when I talk to people, especially because I love swale-based design, and I talk about it a lot, and I use it a lot, and I see the beauty in it, I can almost see it going in any system, some sort of contour-based ditch. People think swales are permaculture. Well, they're not. They're swales. You can put a swale in it and not be permaculture. You can put a permaculture system in it that doesn't have a swale. It might be hard for me to do because I love that design component. But it can be done. We could sheet mulch a backyard, make it permaculture out the butt, and have not a swale or a contour-based component to it. Especially if it's relatively flat and it's not that advantageous in a small catchment flat area. So a swale, a swale, just to understand this for people who don't know, is a ditch on contour. It's where we take a, a level, like an A-frame level or a laser level, and we go out and we mark a straight line. Uh, not a straight line, we mark a level line. In fact, it will almost never be straight. In fact, it will never be straight. You'll go, my backyard is flat. No, it's not. I guarantee you, if I put a level on it, I will find contours in the land. I will find slope in the land. If you take, most people that say that, if they filled up a dog dish with water, with a hose on low, that just over a one-foot dog dish, the water will fall out of one side of the dish versus all sides evenly. If it was dead level, And you filled that dish with a, with a, with a garden hose on low. When it overflowed, it would cascade and sheet all around. If it flows to one side, it's not level. So we go out and we cut this ditch into the landscape on dead level. And that way when it rains and we get water, or we irrigate even, that ditch fills up dead level. It doesn't move water. It stomps it and it soaks it in and it hydrates the land downgrade from where it is. And we plan into that system. We can do things like food forestry with that system. We can do small-scale versions, like we can put a footpath on contour through our landscape that leads us from a place that we we, we go uh, every day. That we, we go from our back door to, let's say, a particular part of our, our landscape that we need to visit daily. If we can connect those with a path or a series of paths that are on contour... When it rains, those paths will act just like a swale. As water comes onto those paths, instead of sheeting across them, it soaks into the land. So we can design these little mini swale-like features into our landscapes. But they are not permaculture. They are a technique. It would be like saying laying bricks is building houses. I can build a house by laying bricks. I can also build a house without a brick in it. I can also lay bricks and build a smokehouse or a barbecue. Or a, a, something to house a mailbox. It's just a technique. But swales are a great technique for use in permaculture. Hugel culture is caught on like wildfire, and I credit Paul Wheaton for that. Uh, Sepp Holzer is like the, the granddaddy of, uh, of modern Hugel culture. Hugel culture is where we take wood and we bury it in a big mound and we plant into it. And it's more complicated than that, but that's the basics. And then when it came to America, people often went, I don't want a big mound. So they dug a hole, put the wood in it, and put dirt on top of the hole, and either ended up with a low mound or something that didn't even look like there was anything there, just flat ground, because they graded out all the dirt. And people said, well, that won't work. But it did. It worked. It worked great. It's an awesome technique, and I call it wood core beds or wood core farming. And the reason I call it that is because hugel culture is basically hill culture, which means it's supposed to be a berm. Supposed to be high, right? But the, but the concept of the wood being at the core works. It's a carbon sink. It's part of the carbon cycle. It's a nitrogen trap. It's not a nitrogen sink. The nitrogen doesn't go away. The nitrogen the wood core takes up is held like a time capsule and released over time. 
as the wood decomposes. It acts like a wick. People in the beginning, when, when Who Culture came out, I, I, I still think that I am the first person and one of the only people actually talking about Who Culture this way. They, they talk about the wood core. So we have this dirt covering wood. I don't care if it's underground, above ground, whatever. You've got dirt over the wood and stuff growing in it. And that wood core is, they say it's a sponge. Because if you go into the woods and you find rotting, decayed wood under the leaves and you pull it out, it's wet even in a dry time of year. It's a sponge. It holds water. Well, the thing is, hugo culture works so good that the wood core is not capable of holding up enough water there for the plants for it to work the way that it does. There's more water getting to the plants than should. That's because the wood actually, by being in contact with the soil, is wicking moisture from below the soil up into where the plants can reach it. It's extending the root zone by bringing the moisture to the plant. And it's doing all these other wonderful things. It's a great technique. It's not permaculture. It's a technique permaculturists use. The crown jewel of permaculture is food forestry. Whether it's great big giant food forests or backyard food forests. And this is a good teachable moment. So in a forest, we can look to a forest. Remember I said the natural system is the teacher. If we took away everything we knew and had to start again from scratch, we would have to look to nature to learn. And if we look in a forest... We can learn something about spatial placements. And there's seven primary layers to a food forest, to a forest, to a forest system of any kind. And one is the high canopy. So if you go into any forest that's developed over to some level of maturity, you have really tall, big trees dominating the system. Big trees, overstory. In America, it might be uh, oak and pine and maple, alder. That, that dominate these systems. Okay, beech, walnut, black walnut in the northeast. In Texas, it's mostly oak. That you get your live oaks, your pin oaks, and things like that that dominate the system. And then you have what you call your low tree layer. Your your trees that fill in those little niches of low area, and your trees out on your edges, and your trees that are waiting for the next opening so that they can canopy out and get big. And some of them just stay low. They're understory. They, they exist in the understory. Understory trees are things like dogwoods and pawpaws. They exist in that, that niche. They often also exist near the forest edge where it breaks out into a field. And then there is a shrub layer, even lower than the low tree layer. And this is, sometimes it's deep in the forest, but not in a mature forest. Usually mature forests are so canopied that they're dramatically open once you're inside them. But the shrub layers, you come out toward the edge. You find all of these clumpy shrubs. And then shrubs going out into the fields. And the shrubs and the low tree layer are one way that the forest actually grows. It, it expands over time. It takes over fields. It advances. And as we, as we come out to where that advancement's occurring, we start to find a lot of herbaceous plants around our edges. And then in our forest, we have shade herbs, Things that grow in the shade like ginseng and golden seal are high value. They grow deep in the forest. But if we come out you know, into our shrub layer with blackberry and things that like to exist on the margins and the edges where most abundance is, then we find other herbaceous plants. Basically, any plant that's not a shrub, it's not a tree, it's an herb. right? And that it occupies that layer, that, that mid-tier layer. If you think of your culinary herbs, they all would fit into this. Rosemary, more of a shrub, but 
herb, kind of a hybrid, but basil and oregano, these would be herbs. But most of your plants that are not postrated, that don't creep and crawl along the ground, would be part of that herbaceous layer. So then we come down to, well, there's another layer that we don't see below the ground. We have a rhizomial layer or a root layer. And the root layer can be a productive root layer like a yam or a potato. But really, all the plants have roots. All the plants are occupying a root layer and doing different things with those root interactions. And then you have your postrate plants, your cover crops, your, your ground layer. That reaches out and coats the ground. If you if you go out in nature, if you see bare dirt, something's disturbed. It something's messed it up. Something's wrong, you know. Or you're sitting in a desert, and you're not sitting in a productive a productive desert. You're sitting in a damaged desert environment. Even scrub deserts, you don't see a lot of bare dirt. Something covers the ground, and when there's nothing else left, your prostrate sprawling plants cover the ground and they pioneer it so that your herbaceous and your shrubs and other layers can come up and extend that forest even a scrub desert forest would be an example and you have your vertical climbers if you go into a forest sooner or later you're going to see vines something's going to make use of that vertical space and the heaviest vertical space usage will be again toward the edges And if you really want to see all layers of a forest, find an edge where it meets a field. And you'll see the high trees, the low trees, the shrub, the herbaceous. And you can you can find rhizomial plants. Groundnut, for instance, might be one. Apios americana. You'll see your cover crops, your, your postrate crops. You'll see your vertical climbers. You'll see vines and twines and things like that. And when we design a forest system to be productive, and instead of oak, we put in chestnut. Right? And for understory, we put something like a pawpaw. We put in apples. Maybe we put in apples as overstory and understory. Dwarfing variety or lower pruned apples underneath and in the edges along overstory. And plums and, and pomegranates and figs, whatever else we put into that system. We want to make sure that we actually occupy those seven layers. And you say, well, what if I don't want seven layers? Well, permaculture teaches us it's not whether you want them or not. They're just spaces. They exist. And if you don't put something there, either the system will become damaged because the area is disturbed and exposed, or more likely nature will provide something for it. Nature will cover the ground. Nature will send a vine. Nature will put a tree up high. Unless you're constantly mowing and cutting it down, nature will eventually have some sort of a pioneering tree. In this country, you're looking at things a lot of times like oaks, but you're also looking at some of the first trees you get in are pines. Osage Arn or Bodark, uh, right? They, they'd show up in the weirdest spots. We've had Bodark trees show up in, in pots. You know, I see this little tree springing up out of a pot. And I'm like, oh, we got to get rid of that. I was like, I want to see what it turns into. I'm like, okay, honey. And they say, you know, it's got a, a root blown through the pot and grown into the ground. And she's like, I can't pick the pot up. I'm like, yeah, because that three-foot tree has a three-foot root now. And it's bored through your pot into the ground. It's fascinating, really. And, and that, that concept that nature will fill those spaces tells us unless we're maintaining a pasture, unless we're maintaining a savanna component or the pasture with the forest, unless we're maintaining an open space, whether it's with animals or through mechanical means, everything will success toward forest. Everything will success toward those seven layers. And therefore, when we design a system, we either have to manage the space or we have to design in the layers. But that's not permaculture. That's the application of a technique through permaculture design.
So you don't have to have a food forest to have permaculture. It's just a really cool way to practice permaculture by designing a food forest. Then we get into things like sectors and zones. So this is, a, this is another thing that's widely misunderstood by people that are not permaculturists and don't understand permaculture. Well, I don't want zones on my property. I don't want to worry about zones. Well, you have zones. Zones are simply defined by how often you visit an area, how often you go there in your daily activities. Let's assume you still get the old-fashioned newspaper and mail, and they, they kind of come to the same spot on your property. You have a mailbox out there, maybe in one of the old-scale old school little boxes that go underneath your mailbox for the newspaper to go in, if anybody knows what you know about those. So every day, if that's you, you're going to probably open your door and walk out to the mailbox and the, and the uh, newspaper box. And if the mail comes at one time and the newspaper does another, you may go out two different times. You may go out in the morning at the paper, then go to work, and when you come home from work, you may stop by the mailbox again to get the actual mail. And if you mail anything regularly, you may go out to the box. You might visit that area three times a day. You might visit it one time a day. But it's a zone one area because you go there every day or almost every day. And that makes the path that you take to get there zone one. Even if it extends into a zone two area, like a peninsula. And what that means is you're going to go do that job every day. So things that are on your property that need daily attention make sense to put in that area. So you might landscape for one, just one instance, right? And they could be a million different things. So you have to understand, it's, you're, you're the designer, you're the artist, the canvas is yours, you do what you want with it. But you might put picking herbs around your mailbox. Culinary herbs that you use every day, like basil and parsley and things like that. And whenever you go out, let's say in the evening, to get your mail, if you're cooking or your spouse is cooking or what have you, another member of the household's cooking, and tonight they're doing fish, well, there's some dill, right? If we're doing something kind of Tex-Mex, there's some cilantro. We're doing potatoes, roasted potatoes tonight, I'll get some rosemary while I'm out there. And it just becomes part of the daily activity. Now... If you put the herb garden around the mailbox, and I'm not saying you should. There might be other zone one areas that are better for a, a, a herb garden. That might be a terrible place for an herb garden because of the solar exposure or what have you. Or because you cook multiple times a day and it could be cold and rainy outside. You don't want to go all the way to the mailbox to get some fresh parsley. You might want it right out the back door. But whether you put something productive and useful and it needs daily attention there or not, you physically are going to go there. Therefore, you have a zone one. Zone zero is inside your house where you exist. You wake up in bed, that's zone zero. You visit that a lot, right? As you just step outside the door and the areas of your property you have to visit daily are all zone one. Zone two, we visit less frequently. So we put things there that require our attention that we need to see, pay attention to, but a little less maintenance. This is where we might put, instead of an intensively managed micro-style food forest where we're pruning our trees to six foot and we're making them like hedges of food and, and we're doing really intense irrigation and, and mulching like a zone one or we're doing uh, anything that we do daily. Like if we, do, if we take compost out every day, the place we drop that compost off should be in our zone one. Zone two, we get a little less intensive. 
We might put our larger trees, rougher mulches. It might be irrigated. It might not. It depends on how big the whole property is. For all intents and purposes, some property is pretty much all zone one because it's a, a postage stamp suburban lot, but there's still areas of greater activity. You know, we might put our wood for our wood pile, for our wood burning stuff in zone two because we, we're, you know, all through the year we're coming up with wood here and there from trimming trees and pruning trees or just finding stuff or getting the opportunity to pick some up. So we might have to go there. We don't want to be out in the middle of nowhere. But we're not going to go there every day. And when we get into the time of year where we're using a lot of wood for burning, we might bring that, you know, a portion of that wood into a zone one area, like stack it on the porch once a week. So we'll visit the wood pile once a week and we'll, we'll bring in enough wood for the week. If we live in a very cold climate, we might want that a lot closer. It might be more of a zone one thing. It depends. Right? But that activity, that minimal visitation activity, There's parts of your property you just don't go to that much. It's going to, be, it's going to exist. This is zone two. Zone three, it's even less frequent. Now, this is where we might run more of a pasture or a, a, an overstory crop or a agricultural style crop. If we're planting a crop, like let's say we decide we want to grow some grain. The grain's not a horrible thing to grow. We want to grow some sorghum and some amaranth. And we put in a couple big areas that we, we crop more conventionally in, in appearance anyway, and we, we grow our grains there. Well, we plant that grain. It might need some irrigation. It might not. It all depends on where we're at. But pretty much, it, you don't do much with it. You're not out weeding sorghum. It grows 10 feet high. It doesn't care about weeds. When you harvest it, you can put it to the ground and bury the weeds under it as mulch. right? And, and you, if you're just harvesting the grain. If you're harvesting the canes, You know, you can put animals through it after, what, what have you. But you, you're not there every day. And there's areas of your property that maybe you visit, you know, once every three weeks. Just because your daily activities don't take you anywhere near them. Zone four is more of your full-on food forestry. This is where you're building a forest that's a natural mimic. And you don't do jack crap to it except you go in and harvest. You go in and plant You go in and maybe chop and drop once once or twice a year, which is where we when we, we go in and we look at plants that are getting out of control that need to be pruned back or support plants that are really only there to make other plants go, and we cut them down and throw them to the ground. But we might visit that once a month. Now, during a harvest time, we might visit it more. And we're not really limited by it, but there's just a functionality. There's places in your property that you you'd rarely go to. And if you have a big property, you might have areas that you've never even stepped foot on. That's your zone five. That's your natural. We always leave some peace and let nature do as it will. And we might sustainably hunt and gather there, but we don't really mess with it. Now, a little postage stamp lot doesn't really have all five zones, but we can use the thinking. A one and a two, maybe, right? We have a zone one and a zone two. High activity, low activity. We put all the things that don't require daily attention in the low activity areas And all things to do in the high activity areas. So this is a scientific approach to design. Those are zones. And again, it doesn't matter if you practice permaculture or not. You have zones. If I put a, a tracker on your wrist with a computer program that plotted your movements on your property over a month, we'd find activity really high in some areas, moderate in others, and low in some and almost non-existent in others, little corners and niches and nooks that you just don't go to. White spots in a sea of red and orange and yellow. So those zones exist. Permaculture is about understanding them and harnessing them as a design. Sectors are about energy. 
in any component that it can come. So we have a solar sector. Where does the sun come from? Okay, And where does it come from in the summer versus the winter? Where it's lower or higher in the sky? How long is it up for? What blocks the sun? Where's your shade? Where does your full-on solar exposure? And then we say, do we want to encourage or discourage that energy? That's a sector analysis. Where's the most likely point that a fire would threaten my property? That's a, that's a fire sector. If there's high amounts of activity, industrial or agricultural in my area, there might be a dust sector, a place where it's more likely to bring in a lot of dust. Do I want to settle that out? Is it, is it high nutrient, high quality dust? If it's blowing out of the desert is a dust storm, I want something to trap it and sediment it onto my property because it's high nutrient. If there's conventional agriculture going on where they're spraying herbicides and pesticides, I want to, I want to stop it at the edge of or off my property. I don't want it here. I want to put it through some kind of remediation process. I want to plant like a, a riparian buffer layer that's going to slowly break that stuff down before it gets onto my property. It depends. Okay, so again, if, I don't care if you're in a permaculture or not. These sectors exist. There's places where the sun hits your property. There's places where it doesn't. There's places where noise comes from, like a highway in the distance. It's just noisy as hell. And a, a landscaper goes in and plants a, a row of you know uh, red tip hedges that grow 12 feet high and block that noise and block a bad view. Say, like, look what I've done. And every eight or ten years they just die. And you have to start all over again. Well, that could have been a hedge of something that was productive. It could be something that you can coppice for firewood. It could be something like willow that could be coppiced and used to make charcoal, an artistic charcoal or burning charcoal, or to produce things like root, rooting hormone. Willow buds actually help other plants root. So that could be, even if it wasn't a food product, or it could be, in the right climate, a big giant hedge of hazels. Because hazels aren't supposed to grow like a tree. We make them do that in agriculture, and they're never happy. They're supposed to be multi-stemmed, and that can be coppiced. And we can use the wood from that. We can do all kinds of things with that wood. From, from fuel, it can be used to grow mushrooms, and it produces the nuts. right? And it lives for hundreds of years properly managed versus you know 12 years like a red tip. But it's the same function. I'm blocking that noise. Well, what if you actually sat down with your property and analyzed all the sectors and said to yourself, where are noises? Where are smells? Where are views? Where are the views I want to frame? It's a beautiful view. I just don't want it to be a beautiful view. I want to actually draw attention to it. I want to frame it. Where can I create a zen blending of the view? So Dave Jackie told me about a place that he went to where when you went to the bathroom, there was a window that looked out toward a lake in the distance. But when you were standing up, you really didn't see out of it very well. But as you, you know, went to wash your hands, you bent down to the sink. And as you went back down to the sink, instead of a mirror there, there was this window. And the window linked to the lake. And you saw this crystal blue lake in the distance as your hand touched the water. That's a zen moment. That you're actually connected to the distant feature by a tactile sensation or a visual sensation with something close up. What if everything you designed on your property or in your business took this type of sectoral analysis into play? So if we designed a business to operate around zones of activity, if employees move in a certain way, then certain things that need their attention are put there so that they're, they're there. 
if there are certain energies and interactions and edges in engaging our customers, that we understand that as a sector analysis, and we encourage what we want and discourage what we don't want. See what I'm saying? This is not just about agriculture. This is business, communities, organizations. doesn't matter. Sectors and zones exist. It's just understanding them and then designing with them in mind. And I want to talk now a little bit about the two main scales of permaculture, small scale and large scale. Small scale, I think, is one of the places with the greatest opportunity because it's low startup cost for you if you want to do it with your property, and it's low startup cost for you if you want to do it for others. It's basically intelligent landscaping. And if I, if I wanted to, to get into permaculture as a consultant right now, I would actually focus on the small. I would focus on small spaces, and I'll tell you why. Years and years ago, when we had something called a stimulus plan, and I wanted to prove how reckless it was, how wasteful it was, how much money was spent for no long-term gain, and show me something right now that we have because of the stimulus. We have an economic recovery. No, show me something. So like when FDR put people to work during the Great Depression, you can argue that it was socialism, and in some ways it was, but when he sent them out to build a park, well, some of those parks still exist. And they're still being enjoyed, and they're actually revenue streams, and they have preserved. I can go look at it. Show, here's a park that was built by the Civilian Conservation. Here, what, what can you show me that, that the, the stimulus really did? On any, you can't. And I wanted to point out how reckless this spending was. And I said, what if we just decided, you know, because one of the big things was green energy. I said, what if we put a two kilowatt solar system? On every house in America that was owner-occupied. We just said, if you want solar panels on your roof, grid-tied, no battery backup, but we just wanted to do that for everybody in America with an owner-occupied home, could we do it? And to do, determine that, I had to determine the number of owner-occupied structures in America, and it's approximately 110 million. And the stimulus absolutely would have paid for a two-kilowatt solar system on every house in America and made doubling it almost ridiculously cheap where most people with any means whatsoever would have done at least four. And all of that would be grid-tied, and there would be solar panels, 110 million homes with solar panels for the same price. And I did this whole analysis of how it would have offset oil uh, as far as coming in from overseas and how much it would have done for the for the for the, for the country and the plant. And I, did, I said I don't think we should do this, but if we're going to spend the money, this is far more productive. But the big thing is I had to figure out how many owner occupied homes there were in America. 110 million. Well, what if 10 percent are up for grabs? It's about 11 million homes. What if there was a thousand permaculture concert, consultants out there really working and targeting those homes as clients for design, installation, maintenance, consultation, spin farming, uh, setting up food co-ops with surplus, every function stacking, fiefdom you can think of. There was a thousand active bust-in-their-ass consultants competing for those 11 million homes. I mean, that would leave every consultant with about 11,000 homes. How many can you handle? A couple hundred? And there's not a thousand. 
permaculture consultants really bust an ass, really teaching, really going after that market. You know what I think there is? A, a handful, if that. I haven't actually seen one. I've seen tons of people talk about it. I know a couple people getting really close. But really doing it, real, targeted marketing, really getting involved, really going after the, 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 that group of 11,000 homes, or for, it might as well be a million, okay? It might as well be a million homes because you have no competition. And saying out of that million homes in, 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 that are in my sphere of uh, activity, which ones have money? And are not in HOAs or are in HOAs that would be receptive or are in HOAs that only really affect the front yard, not the backyard. So going after the houses that have the money and the desire and targeting them and saying, I also want to do things like get involved with churches and saying, you know what, why don't you go and do design at churches for next to nothing? I mean, get the churches to pay for all the equipment and the plants and stuff like that, but do the consultation for free or do it for really, really cheap. And if you do it for a church with 800 members, you just got exposed to 800 potential prospects. I mean, there's, and that's just one opportunity. That's just one way that this could be done. Staying out of public works, by the way. You're not in a school where there's a principal and a school board and regulations and we can't do this and we can't do that. Churches decisions can be made by a handful of people and sometimes one. Sometimes if a pastor says, you know what, folks? We're doing this. Guess what? We're doing this. And there's community gardens going into churches like crazy. So there's a huge opportunity in the small scale. But the small scale has so many advantages inherent to it. I, I, I've said this before, but if I have a quarter acre yard, I can irrigate the whole thing. And when I use intelligent irrigation, I can do it cheap. I don't mean cheap on the infrastructure. There's a certain cost of putting pipes and drip irrigation lines and all of that in. But from an ongoing water usage standpoint, if I build a good soakage and heavily mulched and intensively managed system, I don't need much water. I just need water to go there to make it uber productive. I can do things like intensive gardens, urban food forests. The things that I'm doing there are about intensive production. It's also about reuse and recycling and how to harness that both on my own property or into business. We have one guy on that has a company called Pedal to Pedal. He has people on bicycles that go around and pick up compostables and make compost and then sell the compost. And I just think of how many other businesses could be stacked into that. What if I had my own little property and I was running an organization like that and I was doing the 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 composting on my property and using another technique that we've learned about which is chickens for composting. So I was making this incredibly high quality compost. Like a guy up in Vermont does it has people that are like have on waiting lists to get particular recipes of his compost for particular needs. If I'm doing that, but I have the chickens and the chickens are producing eggs, why can't most of the customers that are giving me compostables be customers for my eggs? It's still direct to consumer. Right, So I, I stay out of a lot of regulations in most states, and when the guy goes to pick up the compostables, he delivers the eggs. So you get compostables and money. And then you get your egg cartons back with a deposit on them. And that's just one example of a business that could be turned up for almost no real investment. Chickens are cheap, guys. Chickens are cheap. And they're not that expensive to feed. And if you go into this compostable model, and then you can go into all your, your, your local gardening groups and things like that, gorilla market, hey, help the planet by giving me your garbage. 
it's it, it's almost too easy for the person that will actually get up and do it. Um, backyard engineering is part of the small scale too, though. See, I, I think that people like Mark Shepard are great guys, and I love Mark. And I, I've got a huge project coming up with him uh, that I'm very excited about. But I think they're almost a little too hard on the small scale. But, like I heard Mark say during one of his talks, we've got to get out of like building rocket mass heaters with bricks and backyards if we're going to make permaculture take over the world. No, I think we need to do things beyond that. doesn't mean we need to stop doing it or stop focusing on it. Because if I can take somebody in my backyard and show them, hey, let's say you make a rocket stove out of bricks... Hey, look, we can scale this up and put it in a greenhouse like that. It doesn't have to be super efficient to run a greenhouse. We can build a little bit bigger of one, and we can just take this pipe out of it, and we can build this out of cinder blocks, and we can slap this thing together for a 100 bucks, and then you can use your, your deadfall twigs to heat your greenhouse, especially in a southern climate where you only have to do it maybe 40, 50 nights out of the year. You stick these things in there, you light them, they burn, Nothing dies in the greenhouse that night. You set it, forget it, walk away from it. Well, that has a tremendous value. And I think that it's always been the case that the small-time engineer, the redneck engineer, the backyard engineer, the, the, the shop engineer, right, that doesn't have an engineering degree, has always been the ones that come up with the, the concepts that then get taken by the larger scale and then made into something more. And all of the backyard engineering, aquaponic systems, etc., that, that go on within small-scale permaculture have applications that can be scaled up. It's up to either the person that, that, that's come up with it to get it to scale up or someone else to take it on. And I think what people have to stop doing is stop trying to own ideas and start looking to who can take your idea and make it something more and partner with them. Or even if you're never going to develop it, then give it away. Don't hold on to it, right? I mean, come up with a deal that's very easy for that person to accept. If it works, I get the 50 cents a unit after it works, after a thousand of them are made and sold. You know, don't greed prevents the acquisition of wealth. Greed does not create wealth. Greed does not preserve wealth. Greed destroys wealth. And, and the worst greed is greed for that which you do not even have yet. It is the most shutting down thing in the world it is the most uh, it is the worst obstacle to the most people is to fear losing that which you do not have what if i lose if you, do you have it yet no then you can't lose it I'm just saying backyard engineering urban food forest reuse and recycling intensive gardens small scale food forest these are the things that really make Backyard and small-scale permaculture exciting. When we go on to a broad anchor scale, somebody recently mentioned to me a podcast that somebody did about why permaculture is failing. And, and the, the way they did this is they pointed to a few people that are out there trying to make a living in sustainable agriculture. Some of them don't even know what permaculture is that were used as examples, by the way, and they're not profitable. Well, this is asinine. Because the, 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 the statement is, well, it's failing, but broad, uh, broad scale agriculture is successful. The, the conventional agriculture is what's successful. Okay. Well, then let's do an apples to apples comparison. Apples seem quite germane to the subject. Um, given that we're, we're talking about permaculture today, the average net revenue per acre during a blow-up, bang-up, successful year for a corn farm is $950 an acre. 
That's a gross revenue of $1,200, which means you hit the market right and you got a good price for your corn. It's a production cost of about $250, which means not a lot went wrong, and you were able to use a base-level production cost. You had a net revenue of $950 for all the work that goes into producing that. And that means that a person with a 40-acre farm practicing proven conventional agriculture Uh, in the successful model that's being held up as the example that grew 40 acres of corn, if nothing goes wrong, can profit $38,000. And that doesn't include all the equipment costs and, and everything else. And you know what? Can you make a living on $38,000 and survive today on a 40-acre farm? Pfft. So if, if we actually compare reality here, And we look at something like Mark Shepard's farm, New Forest Farm, which is, albeit, I'll tell you, the most successful farm from a profit model in America today. But it's an example of what can be done. And it wasn't done in, in the beautiful black nerd of Iowa. It was done in hard-packed, eroded, extracted red clay in northern Wisconsin in Zone 4. His average production cost per acre today is $83. That's about how much money he spends per acre in the cost of production. And his gross revenue on average, and I'm looking at a report in front of me from his organization right now, $5,000. Profit of $4,900 an acre. So that means that 10 acres managed that way, which, by the way, you could do more on 10 acres per acre than you can with the 100-acre New Forest Farm does. You can be more intensive with 10 than you can be with 100. Because you can, and I'll explain that in a second, just so, so you understand that. But, but that means that 10 acres managed this way could produce about 50 grand a year, 49 and change. Versus 38,000 from a cornfield of 40 acres, or four times the size. So when we actually start comparing that, so when they say that, that large-scale agriculture is successful, well, yeah, if you're farming a 1,000 acres and nothing goes wrong. And by the way, you're probably in debt up to your ass, and you're not wealthy, and the way farmers actually end up with money in the end is they, they run the farm for long enough to pay for most of the farm, and they take and they make their money on real estate. But what's worth more, a cornfield or a full-on system built with multiple layers of productivity in it that's producing cattle, that's producing poultry, that's producing pork, that's producing chestnuts, apples, plums, currants, blueberries. That's what New Forest Farm is doing. Is a 100-acre cornfield or a 100 acres like that that's beautiful, that's full of birds and wildlife, that people would want to go to just to look at it, which one's worth more? And I mean in real dollars. So... When people say things like broad-scale permaculture is not succeeding, they're not looking in the right place. They don't even know what what broad-scale permaculture is. If you point to some lady running a cattle ranch, which was in this, this this podcast, and say, well, that's an example of permaculture failing, that's an example of a cattle rancher failing. They probably don't know permaculture from, from a hole in the ground. And another thing to understand is it's not always called permaculture. But we look at another very successful person in this space, Joel Salatin. And he takes heat now because he makes a lot of money writing books and, and speaking. Well, that's because people want to know how he did what he did. 
the farm came first, and the farm was profitable before anybody bought a book. That's why people bought the books in the first place. And if you have any doubts about the productivity in Joel Salton's operation, go out to one of his farms and look at it. And, and, and watch, go to a field day and watch them feed uh, hundreds of people from food that was processed yesterday right on their farm. And go there and watch people buy the food. And you can see that it works. You can see that it's profitable. You can see that it functions, that it does what it's supposed to do. But Joel Salen did not call it permaculture until permaculture called Joel Salen a permaculturist. He just called it farming. He was just farming first and foremost. He was taking responsibility for himself and that of his children. It was a true family farm that first fed the family. Okay, and as his children got older, instead of just farting around, he said, "If you want, if you want to make a living here, I'm not going to pay you just to exist. Take a look at what we're doing, figure out where you fit in, and do something with it." And some family members did things like started their own, like his son with the with the pasture rabbit component to the business, and his son's wife, who's basically a commission salesperson who develops accounts for the food to be sold to. Right, so very first, this is I'm gonna prove to you, Joel sounds a permaculturist, not just because he figured out it was a cool way to market himself. That's what he did first. If you look at his land, it has been managed in such a way that the earth has been cared for. For God's sakes, after 20 years, they had to raise the fence posts because he built so much soil, the fence were not high enough anymore. That's care of the earth, care of people. If you listen to Joel Salton speak, you'll see why he's in demand as a speaker because of all the ideas he gives you, but also the story. For instance, when he got started, they were working so hard to take care of their customers. And when they were just getting started and they were changing what they were doing into the sustainable model that, that they built, one of their customers gave them a car. At a time when they really needed a car and they could have afforded a car, but boy, they really didn't want to spend the money on a car. They wanted to keep it in the property, and the customer just looked at them and gave them a Cadillac. Not a brand new Cadillac, but a nice Cadillac, and said, here, here's the keys. We don't want you to go away. We want to keep being able to do business with you. We want you to be here in our community. You do not get a customer to give you a car if you're not caring for people. It is the most karmic proof point I could give you that that operation is a people care operation. Return of surplus. Go look at it. The surplus productivity is continuously reinvested. More land is developed. Land is developed both through direct ownership and lease models. They, they invest in people. They bring interns in. They train interns. And they give interns opportunity to do something on one of their farms and their land, or to go back and take it somewhere else. But it's a, that's part of the reinvestment cycle. So Joel Salatin was doing that long before he called it permaculture. He heard about it and went, man, I can sell books if I... Yeah. Actually, what happened to Joel was the permaculturist saw what he was doing, the permaculture community saw what he was doing, and started saying, look at Joel, look at Joel, look at Joel. And Joel goes, what, me? Oh, I'm a permaculturist? I don't know about that. What is this stuff? Oh, yeah, that's what I do. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's just, so there are, see, this is what thing that people don't realize. For every person like Joel Salatin that's well known, there's hundreds of people out there farming the, under that model. 
that no one knows them by name except the people that are doing business with them. And they're too busy being successful to talk about being successful. A, a great example is Darby Simpson. Darby Simpson keeps saying, one day I'm going to get and do more of this permaculture stuff. I'm like, dude, you're doing it. You're doing it right now. You just don't know it. You, you don't know that's what you're doing. Now, I think there's some things that, like there could be some trees installed and things like that that would en enhance what he's doing and take it to another level. But he's successful. The guy's livestock is sold before it hits the pasture. If you show up today and go, I want to buy some chicken, I can't help you. Maybe next year. I'll increase production if you're going to, you know. I mean, so to say that it's not working is ridiculous because it's being done everywhere. It's just not being done to the level where people really understand it yet. And it also requires the integration of animals. I believe to do large-scale permaculture. I'm not really talking about mid-scale, because I'm, I'm going to back up in a second and talk about another way that this is being done. People just don't see it as what it is. But if you're doing something, you know, 20 acres, 30 acres, 50 acres, 100 acres, and animals are not part of the equation, it's probably not going to work as a permaculture system. You need a way to recycle the surplus. You need you need for the natural system to be mimicked. There is no area unmolested that's 40 acres of, of prairie or forest. It's not teeming with animal life. And if we don't bring animals in that we control, and we're running that system not strictly in a natural standpoint, we're actually we've decided to get in and intervene. We now need the animals to do the work that humans can't. So I think that if you look at something and animals are not part of the equation and it's broad scale and somebody wants to say, well, that's an example of permaculture, it probably isn't. It may be from a standpoint of the intent of the operator, but the functionality is going to break down and fail. When I talked to Jeff Lawton about this, what he said is, you can't do everything with nitrogen-fixing plants. That was as blunt as he could be. Like there, there are ways that this, that, that these animals fit into the system. When I read the old works of Bill Mollison, not the stuff in the designer's manual, but some of the, the the lectures he's given that were transcribed by Barking Frogs Permaculture, he talks about how the ox, the European ox, is what advanced the forest. As he come out of the forest, he lived in the forest, but but fed and 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 and, and bred in the the edges in the fields, and his activity advanced the forest. And whether we're controlling a pasture or advancing a forest, animals do that. So I think that that's part of what's necessary for broad scale is anim animal integration. And that's when you look at monocropping. There's no animal integration at all. It's animal exclusion. And there's a move by government to try to separate the two. But they don't want a cow pooping near where, where food's grown for humans, which is preposterous. It's ridiculous. But there's a movement to try to pass laws to prevent this. There's some regulations coming down that already do these types of things. It's asinine. It needs to be pushed back and fought back. And we need to fight back by proving it works by doing it. It also requires a time-phased approach. So if I go in and plow a field this year, assuming some kind of catastrophic thing doesn't happen, there's a corn yield at the end of this year. Okay. When I go in and I plant a thousand apple trees, there's probably no yield of note for at least five years. Five years. I can shorten it a little bit with certain varieties and all, but my full-on productivity is really beginning five years down the line. I got to pay the bills during those five years. That's partly where animals come in. 
But we can't judge that system that will produce for a hundred years against the first year production of a system that won't produce anything the second year except weeds unless we put more inputs into it. So that's another part of understanding a large scale. And I think it's mostly large-scale permaculture is misunderstood by mainstream agriculture and it's misunderstood by a lot of people in permaculture, especially what I call the purple breeders. What's a purple breeder? A purple breeder is the people you see in the video that I have a link to today rolling around in the mud pretending to be shamans and, 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 and aboriginals, okay, when they're not. Purple breeders are the people that think permaculture is for social justice, Probable breathers are the people that say, I'm going to do something someday, but I don't have any money, and if somebody would just give me something, then I could do it. Those are purple breathers. Purple breathers are people that photocopy a book and distribute it without the permission of the author and say they're sharing the surplus. These are purple breathers. And they cannot possibly in any way understand large-scale permaculture. And then a lot of the backyard permaculturists that understand permaculture can't understand broad-scale permaculture, not because of a misunderstanding of permaculture, but a misunderstanding of business. The average homeowner in America, whether they have a permaculture backyard or they mow the grass once a week, that works as an employee, that's never signed the front side of a paycheck, that's never dealt with inventory and paying bills that really mattered. Now, they didn't just do it for somebody else. They did it for themselves. That's never looked at a workforce and thought, if I don't get this right, these people are going to get fired, and I'm not going to be able to put food on their tables, because that's as an employer what you're actually doing. You're putting food on the tables of the people that work for you, whether they respect or understand that or not. So if we took a person who worked as, let's say, a auto mechanic, That's what you did. You go every work day. They go to work. They do oil changes. They do tune-ups. They do spark plugs. They do all of those things. Customers come in, drop a car off. Somebody else writes up a service ticket. Somebody else takes care of all the inventory. Somebody else takes care of all the taxes. Somebody else takes care of marketing it so the customer will come in in the first place. Somebody else pays the the lease on the on the the building. Somebody else takes care of the insurance. Somebody else takes care of everything. All they do is work as a mechanic, and they might be a damn good mechanic. And you say, you know, do you think you're fairly paid? They're probably going to tell you no, and they have no idea what the cost of employing them is. They have no idea how close that business might come once or twice a year to going under. They have no idea that that business probably survives with a revolving line of credit. And even though it's profitable in the annuum, it's not profitable during certain dip points. And it has to be sustained through those dip points through careful management practices and tough decisions. So if you said to the, to the auto mechanic, who's always just been an auto mechanic, a shade tree mechanic, and an employed mechanic, Tell me how to run a mechanic shop. Tell me how to run a Meineke. They could talk all around it, but they probably can't actually tell you how to do it. Because they don't know how to run a business. Because they're not an entrepreneur and they've never run a business. And they are compartmentalized. The backyard permaculturist that's not doing something for a business back there. It's just, this is my, my backyard. It's beautiful. And let me make sure I'm clear. There's no, I want millions of people doing that. I have no problem with it. But they can't understand the business of broad-scale permaculture-style agriculture 
because it's not just about the food. It's about the insurance. It's about the lean times. It's about the work. It's about managing employees. It's about, you know, legal liability issues. It's about accounting. It's about record keeping. It's about property taxes. It's about compliance issues. It's, there's, there's all of these things that are business oriented that would be the same if the business made typewriters, for God's sakes, as, as produced chicken. And, Because the person doesn't understand that, they look at something and say, well, these three people tried it and failed, so it doesn't work. Well, those three people might not know their ass from a hole of ground by a business running, running a business either. Watching 400 YouTube videos about permaculture, somehow figuring out how to get yourself onto a piece of land and starting a farm, doesn't mean you know the business of farming or ranching or permaculture. Doesn't mean you Now, that is not a terrible way to do things. But most of the time, it's not that these people fail, it's that they struggle to get by. And people say, look at, look at them struggling. They barely make it every year. Well, how many farmers barely make it every year? Conventional or organic or otherwise. How long does it take to learn to really operate and efficiently run a business? And for every successful business, how many people try and fail in anything? Permaculture, farming is no different. It's tough to make a living running your own business until you figure out how to do it. And then it becomes something that you can't see ever doing any other way. You also have to judge a permaculture farm based on what it actually does for the people, not just the bottom line. First of all, understand, this is another thing. The people that don't run a business don't understand. At the end of the year, I want the number that says profit to look as small as possible Because it's what I pay taxes on. And I will divest of income in any way that I can that's beneficial to me and is considered an expense, an operational component. I will drive that number to zero if I can. And if my house is paid for, my bills are paid for, there's some money in my account still, my, my retirement's grown, whatever. If everything, I've fed myself, I've fed my family, we've got a bunch of food laid up, I know I'm going to eat all next year again, I'm happy, then I want that number to be zero. If I can make those, it's very hard to make those two things both happen, but I want that number as close to zero as possible. So saying, well, look, the median farm income is $30,000. What's the median small business income? In any business that has as much latitude for creating expense. Trust me, if you give me an opportunity to create an expense, I'll do it. That's called business. Right? It doesn't mean I'll waste money, but if I find out, for instance, I can buy a piece of equipment that I wasn't going to buy until next year, but if I buy it this year, there's a government program that lets me, instead of uh, uh, depreciating it, expense the entire cost of the equipment in one year as a straight expense. Even if I finance it and don't put all the money out, and I'm buying a $50,000 piece of equipment that I can expense at $50,000, but I'm only going to spend uh, $5,000 on payments on it this year, boom. That doesn't mean I'm just going to go out and buy it, but I'll buy it this year versus next year if that tax advantage exists. Now, the person, whether it's permaculture or auto mechanics, that's never run a business, doesn't even think this way. 
I got a guy across the street from me. They're getting a couple cows. Why? Because there's new incentives and programs within uh, our area where they can expense a great big truck that they wanted anyway. Because now they're cattle ranching. And all they're doing is moving some cows around. They don't expect to ever make any real money out of it. They get the cow, they put it on their property for a couple months, and it goes somewhere else. But it qualifies. So they're operating that way. Why? Because it drives down their income that they pay taxes on, but the money they're spending they would have spent anyway. So you can't just judge uh, an income number. You look at a real estate investor, their income might be jack diddly crap, but they might have a bunch of money in their pocket. Well, how does that happen? Depreciation expenses and 1301 exchanges. So I buy a property, and I'm, I'm <laughs> and then I depreciate the property, And if the interest on the payments on the property and the depreciation, which is a phantom expense, exceed the rental income that's real income, I have no income on that property on paper. And I won't for years, but I have income. A good farmer on large-scale properties is taking advantage of those types of opportunities as well. And that's why a lot of them are borrowing money even if they don't have to. Because the system makes you. So you can't understand broad-scale farming and broad-scale permaculture if you don't understand broad-scale business. And that's where one of the breakdowns is. And that's why some people say, well, it doesn't work. Well, no, you have to be intelligent in business to be successful in business. Let me tell you, though, the simple truth about permaculture and why it applies to so many things. Number one, as I said earlier, the unaltered ethics. If we stick to care of the earth, care of people, return of surplus – And the directive of taking care of ourselves and our children and being responsible are universal. All responsible adult human beings that have a sense of self-worth and value and give a shit about one person other than themselves would find those to be unobjectionable ethics if not tied to some political agenda. If I just walked up to average people on the street, yourself included, and said, do you think you should take responsibility for yourself? Uh-huh. Okay. Do you think you should take responsibility for your kids if you have any? Yeah. Okay. Do you think we should screw up the earth or should we, you know, be reasonable about the way we care for it? Oh, we should take care of it. Should we hurt people or should we care for people? We should care for people. If there's garbage, should we just throw it out in the street or we should figure out how to do something productive with it? Do something productive. Universal. That's where they came from, by the way. This is why I have such a, a problem with people that try to change and alter them or say they're not important. Bill Mollison, who founded this whole thing, spent a long time investigating the ethics of indigenous cultures throughout the world and distilling them down to those four commonalities, those four pillars with which to build an entire design science on, an entire movement on. Something that anybody who wasn't a psychopath would look at and go, yeah, that makes sense. So if we have something that universal as our foundation, and that's our initial restrictions within the floor plan, so to speak, we know the design will flow and be redundant, will have redundancy and will have resiliency. The next is this is a system of design. It is not just how to grow food. I don't care if you ever want to grow food in your life. The methodology and the thinking can be applied to every business, every organization, every functional system can be built on those ethics and that directive and with that type of scientific analysis. 
And the truth is, since permaculture, especially the agricultural type of permaculture, is built on natural systems, if it doesn't work, the natural systems don't work. If permaculture doesn't work, forests don't work. <laughs> it's, it's a preposterous comp uh, argument. And, and the, the truth is, modern agriculture doesn't work, if we fairly judge it. If you took away the government intervention, the subsidies, the control... The monopolistic distribution models, the subsidies that exist in the form of chemicals and mining extraction. Modern agriculture doesn't make a dime in the end. It doesn't, it is not profitable. It's been made profitable so that we could get the result. It extracts from all other sources of wealth at this point, which is ridiculous. Because the, the primary source of wealth of any society truly is its ability to care for and feed itself. Agriculture should not be a parasite, yet it has become one. Don't be upset if you're a farmer. I didn't say farmers are parasites. The agricultural industry is a parasite. There's more fuel used in agriculture than in passenger cars in America. You know that. We look at all the fuel agriculture uses, tractors, combines, shipping, by freight, by truck, by air, and what it takes to feed America. There's more energy that goes into that than to make cars drive you to work and back, and they tell you to carpool. It shouldn't be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. Modern agriculture doesn't work. We've created a system where we can extract from Peter to pay Paul. That's modern agriculture. The modern farmer is going broke. There are almost are no more farmers anymore. The, the ones that are still left are in their 60s. And as they wane, young people aren't stepping up and taking over. Conglomerates are taking over. And managing 10,000, 20,000, 30,000 acres as a conglomerate. And employing people with seasonal labor and employing more and more automation, farming doesn't work, conventional or otherwise, right now. Because we've created an artificial system based on extraction. So when we take a look at something like sustainable agriculture, we have to judge it for itself. Does it accomplish its goals? And its goal isn't necessarily to make somebody rich. You know? A, a, a good farmer on 10 acres or more should be able to do better than a fast food worker economically. Does fast food work in an economic standpoint? They probably can do better than the average middle income American in many ways because some of what they produce is not in dollars and not subject to taxation. Uh, it's what I talked about with business earlier. A business owner, it's not about tax breaks. It's about understanding the dynamics of monetary flow and government regulation. So I often earn money, spend it, and then pay taxes on what's left, where employees often earn money, pay taxes on it, and spend what's left. Well, if I, on my farm, am putting food on my table on a daily basis, <laughs> and it's coming straight out, I'm basically buying it for myself at cost, and I'm never paying tax on it. So if you added up your grocery bill, okay, and figured out how much money you spend on groceries a year, 
and then figured out how much tax you paid on it. What if all that tax money went back in your pocket? In essence, that's what farms that are successfully run with a permaculture model do. A permaculture farm will feed the people on the farm. As it develops, it can't help but feed the people on the farm. What are you going to go to the grocery store for when you know you just processed 3,000 chickens in the last run? Why wouldn't you take a portion of them for your own use? Of course you would. You have a lot less money in them for the quality that they're providing you. And the, the, the rest of them pay for that plus profit. You know, when we, we were looking at doing pigs on the farm, we talked to Darby as a consultant, and we said we were thinking about doing just a few of them to get a feel for what we're dealing with. He said, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> do 20. If you do 20, all the owners can take one. You can use a couple for the farm, and the balance of them, even sold at just market rate, will pay for the ones you've used. There's your test bed. And he was right. We have to understand things on a different level to understand what work and not work means. And most people judging permaculture from the outside don't understand business and they don't understand permaculture. So there's no way you can take their opinions as fact. And they'll point to successes that are actually permaculture-type successes and they don't know it's permaculture because no one told them. Just saying. Final thoughts today, guys. I hope this gives you a good overview. I know I went kind of long, but this is a subject I am deeply passionate about, and I, I really care deeply for because it's done so much for me. It's not so much it's done so much for me because of what I'm watching my property turn into. If you asked me why the Survival Podcast has become the success that it's become, I would tell you because it's a permaculture business. I... I Put it in place to take responsibility for my family and myself and stop living the life that I didn't want to live. I felt that corporate America was heading me toward a grave, an early grave from a heart attack and stress and obesity at the time. I wasn't a good husband because I was miserable. I wasn't a good father because I was miserable. So I decided to take responsibility and build something that would change that dynamic. From the very beginning... What we've done here at the Survival Podcast has had an ecological thread to it. Just because I don't agree with some of the global warming alarmists doesn't mean we haven't preached sustainability because you cannot have survivability without sustainability. So we've been an ecologically friendly business, and we've done a lot to promote positive environmental impact. So we've cared for the earth. We've cared for people. We've done what we can to help people. I, I've tried to springboard other entrepreneurs. There's a people care ethic inside of the Survival Podcast Some of the things that you guys have returned back to us are, are you know, extremely emotional when I talk about them. It's hard to have your voice not crack when you think about the things that have been given back to me by this community. Those things only happen when you're caring for people. And we've always tried to return the surplus. When I learn something new, I don't charge you. To, like, I'll tell you nine of the ten points, but you have to pay for the tenth one. We've built a revenue model on a return of surplus. We took our surplus advertisers that we couldn't sell advertising to and created a discount program with them and sold that product back to the audience for less than it's worth. And it's been extremely profitable. I do not apologize for my success. I'm not going to get rich doing this, but I do not worry about paying the mortgage at the end of the month ever. I just don't. And if I decide, you know, I can't do it every night, but if I decide like one night I want to take my wife out to a spectacular meal 
and I want to drop a few bills on it and make her feel spoiled, I just do it because success has followed that procedure. We've built the eight forms of capital, the cultural, the experiential, the community, not just financial. This is a permaculture business. It's run with a microphone and a computer, and it might talk about permaculture, but it doesn't have to. This, this podcast could be about sports, and it could be run the same way. It really could. And every successful small business that has longevity in it has many of these components to it. And if, I believe if the owners and the managers of them understood these principles, they could be better. If I was actually going, if you said to me, Jack, imagine the survival podcast just for some reason dried up and blew away. And for some reason you just couldn't go into that anymore. And you had to go back into business. And you weren't going to do it with a podcast. You had to do a business business with customers and clients and all. What would you do? I would consult with small businesses to build their business on the permaculture model around eight forms of capital, responsibility for themselves and that of their children and their communities, be good citizens within their communities, not necessarily their nation, their community, the people that they actually touch, to develop their processes around sector and zone analysis, to understand layers and edges within their business. I would build a consulting practice on permaculture for businesses that didn't care about onions, turnips, or trees. And it would be successful because it works. It's a good model. That's my final thoughts today. That's why I think you should learn about permaculture even if you don't want to grow a lot of food. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess And we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.